You've got to put yourself first for a time. Normally we don't. I think not normally we sort of feel if somebody knocks on the door of our office, we ought to let them in. And you just have to say, no, this is a period of extreme selfishness where I don't want to be interrupted and I just want to be quiet and have fun and think. And it may come up with ideas that makes everybody's job expectations rather improved. Today's guest on Secret Leaders is, I'll admit, someone you probably have heard of, but you're here to learn from the world's very best. And today's topic du jour is creativity, which is why we are in the proverbial COVID studio of well, Zoom with a maestro on the topic, Mr. John Cleese. So for a quick rundown of career highlights, accolades, John was the co-founder of the infamous Monty Python Flying Circus, complete with their blockbuster films that we all know and love, the creator and star of 40 Towers, voted by BAFTA as the best British sitcom of all time, whose fans are as diverse as John Lennon and Martin Scorsese. I thought I'd bring that up to remind you. I know it's worth saying that your lead character, Basil Forty, only one runner-up in Best Comedy Characters of all time, but, you know, to Homer Simpson, so possibly you'll let that slide. A long career in writing, including one of the all-time greats, A Fish Called Wanda and Fierce Creatures, has led John to a point in his life where he looks back on his writing processes and accomplishments as a series of creative experiences to share and inspire with. And that is why he's joining us on the podcast today. Not necessarily for his life story spanning studying law at Cambridge University to creating the best British comedy ever, but specifically to see what we mere business folk can learn from him about the art of creativity <laughs> as he has just spent his time distilling his thoughts into a beautiful short and practical guide called creativity a short and cheerful guide that i've just had the honor of reading early and distilling thoughts from so welcome to the studio john thank you how long did it take you to read it uh, that's a very good question. I am, I have to say, a very slow reader, which is why I almost always read everything on Audible, and I would still say it took me around an hour. Yeah, that's what everyone says, and I couldn't be more delighted, because in a book like this, you, there's lots of information about creativity that doesn't help you become more creative. Like, uh, psychologists will say, well, if you travelled in your youth, you're more likely to be creative. Well, if you can't move backwards in time, that's not useful information. Perfect. Listen, John, we always kick off our interviews with a quick fire round, and why would you be any different? So can we get to that quickly? Of course. All right, cats or dogs? Cats. We've already talked about it, a man with great taste. Uh, writing or acting? Writing. Tortoise or hare? Tortoise. Monty Python or Forty Towers? Monty Python. Wow, did not expect that, okay. Um, leave or remain? No, I'm just joking. You can take three things with you to a desert island for the rest of your life, what are they? Uh, my wife, my cats and the Bible. No, no, that's a joke. Jesus, I was going <laughs> to say you had me on the first day, but wow. Uh, well, when they did, uh, what was that thing called Desert Island Discs? In the old days, people always took the Bible. I would take a book by Ian McGilchrist called The Master and His Emissary because it explains more things to me than any other book I've ever read. It's about the two hemispheres of the brain being different and how uh, we probably function best when they're in balance and they're not in balance at the moment because our society is very left hemisphere in its thinking. So th those are three things I'd take. Mm. I'd take Michael Palin too. 
if you, you know, I mean, you might, why don't you take Michael Palin and ask him to bring the book? <laughs> I like your thinking. Oh, you're going to do well, yeah. Yeah, that's uh, left and right brain, right in action. Okay, we're officially ready to begin. So, John, we're going to start with some basics. How do you define creativity? Uh, the ability to come up with ideas uh, about how you can do anything better. Okay, and can anyone be creative? I think so. I believe so. I think that all children are creative because they know how to play and that the nature of our education system and of our society in general is that it squeezes the creativity out of people. But it can be regained by purchasing this book for seven quid. I mean, quite seriously, uh, children can play they get out of the habit of playing because as they become older and older, they have more responsibilities and you cannot play unless you can forget about your responsibilities. So what I'm saying is that you have to have a, you have to create a space where you're not going to be interrupted, where there's been nothing else to annoy you or irritate you. And then you have to have uh, that space for about an hour and a quarter, an hour and a half, because the first 15 minutes, you just have to let the mind settle because it's the, the first thing that happens is you, you start thinking about all the things that you ought to be doing <laughs> if you hadn't decided to have a creative space. So you have to let the mind shut up a little bit like in, in uh, meditation and then you can start having ideas. And do you think that creativity can have negative connotations or is it mostly a positive endeavour? I think anything can have negative connotations. There's a wonderful book called Technopoly by Neil Postman, and he points out that the moment we were able to write, our memories got worse. Uh, when you uh, create nuclear fission, you create a nuclear bomb. Uh, in my day, nobody worried about anyone hacking anyone because the technology wouldn't have allowed you. You know, there wasn't the technology that could be hacked. So what people don't really see is that whenever anything new comes along, there's always a good use for it and a bad use for it. And the sad thing about the planet is there's usually 40 or 50% who will cheat the others. Uh, so there's no thing as something that uh, has totally good or, or totally bad effects. No, completely agree. You know, entrepreneurship, by its very definition, is creative because these are people who've created something out of nothing. So whereas in larger businesses, one of the most common complaints that people might have is they feel stifled or their creativity feels stifled and that they have in their role. So how do you think about these two different um, definitions and types of characters? The problem is, and I'm being absolutely honest, I think that very, very few people really know what they're doing and a correspondingly small percentage actually know what they're talking about. So I think the most dangerous people are the people who really think they know what they're doing because uh, they've no idea that they don't know what they're doing and that gives them tremendous confidence and then they want things exactly as they want them. So they want to control everything and controlling everything means stifling everyone else's creativity. A certain American president, perhaps. Yeah, well, exactly. Exactly. Robin Skinner said, I mean, do you want to use just the CEO's creativity or do you want to use the creativity of the entire organization? And I remember somebody was very famous management writer and I was trying to think of his name. But anyway, this guy, I went to one of his, he said he contrasted uh, IBM with uh, 3M. And remember, this was in the 80s. And he said, at IBM, the people in charge know everything 
everything that's going on, and it's not a great deal. <laughs> and at 3M, <laughs> there's a great deal going on, and the people at the top only know about a bit of it. So do you want to run an organization where you give people freedom? Or do you want one that, 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 where they just treat, treat it as instruments to carry out your will? And the one thing they have to do is to submit to financial control, otherwise expenditure can spin out of control. But otherwise, I think it's lovely to give people space. And when I work with people, you know, I've just been making a film in Yorkshire and there was a nice young guy who had to sort of make me coffee and make sure I hadn't fall asleep at important times. And uh, I started getting his advice about uh, the ad adaptation of Life of Brian for the London stage because he'd studied theology at all. Oxford. Well, he doesn't know anything about show business, but it was tremendously helpful. He just started to talk and he kept giving me ideas. So do you want to use everyone's intelligence and creativity or do you want to pretend you're a fucking know-it-all and everybody's got to do it your way? There's only one way to go, but it's not the way the planet works. How do you think that the, uh, you know, for example, the coronavirus, the pandemic, the increase of working from home, might actually have given people more space because if you imagine employees inside businesses, inside offices, inside physical spaces where they are around other people, interrupted, bosses coming over to their desk, asking them questions when they might be in a creative flow, how do you think that that might actually have created more creative opportunities? I'm sorry for saying the word creative so many times there. But, there's you know. no other really good, there's no other really good synonym. So I think, you know, we can excuse ourselves for using it all the time. I think you're absolutely right in I mean, one of my feelings is that I am an introvert. And people are always surprised. They think performers are extroverts. No, we're not at all. We have a, a, a stage personality. Um, some performers are extroverts, but I'm not. And that means that if I spend a whole day amongst people, I'll enjoy it. But then I have got to get back to my house and be very quiet with my cats and my wife and a book or play chess against myself because I just need to recharge my batteries. Whereas an extrovert who's surrounded by people all day is energized by them, whereas basically I have my energy slowly sucked away if I have to be extrovert. So this, this has a tremendous effect on something like open planning in offices. I mean, um, some people uh, would rather have lots of people coming in and chatting to them all the time. Well, that's good, and work in an open plan office, but introverts are not operate like that and introverts who tend to be more creative than extroverts above all want not to be interrupted so why would you put an introvert in an open plan office it's it's sabotaging that introvert's ability and there's a lot of research showing that it doesn't work particularly well but everybody assumes that that's what you have to have these days and that's one of the things that interests me is that people's assumptions about what, I'll give you a silly example. I was just in a hotel in York and in the shower, which was very nice, were just two controls. And there were no words on the control, of course, because designers don't like words. It's partly because designers can't read, but it's also because designers are only interested in the way things look. So there were these two circular steel things with little things sticking out the top, little levers. And every day I set it at the temperature that I wanted. And when I got back the next morning and went into it, woke up in the morning and went and had a shower, the maid had put the little lever back to vertical. Why? Because <laughs> she knew, in quotes, that it was supposed to be vertical. Right. <laughs> 
Do you see what I mean? So she automatically put it to vertical, despite the fact that I always put it to the right temperature. And it's that kind of thinking that goes right the way through to the top. People just do things because they think they ought without ever examining why. We've had a previous guest on the show from a company called WeTransfer, and he described himself as an ambivert. So not an, oh, yes. not an yes. introvert, not an extrovert. And that always really resonated with me because, you know, when you were talking just now about uh, needing to go home, be with your cats and your wife and re-energize, I mean, that's me to a T. I, everyone thinks I'm a massive extrovert, but I do do well in social environments and I do. But I, if I had a choice, would be home with my cats and energizing and that would be my... So I've always thought of myself, I've thought since I heard that, as an ambivert. But ideally, to be an ambivert, yes, to be an ambivert, I think, is a, is a wonderful uh, gift from God. But there's a book about uh, introversion by Susan Cain, C-A-I-N, like the naughty man in the Old Testament. And uh, she wrote a book called Quiet. And it's extraordinarily interesting on all this. But I, I define an extrovert as someone who, after spending a whole day in company, feels energized. And an introvert is somebody who enjoyed spending a whole day in company, but has now got to get back to recharge their batteries on their own. You've got a lot of experience of generating creative output, or, you know, as other people might call it, uh, productive output from flow states. So what is your secret process? Well, it's to create a space in which you can play. And I, I've, I came across a book in the 80s by a Dutch historian called Huizinga, called Ludo, sorry, Homo Ludens, Homo Ludens, meaning playing man. And he made a simple statement. He said, play has to be separate from everyday life. And I thought about it. It's a bit like a football match. You go and sit in the ground, and then the referee blows the whistle, and then everything changes. In a sense, the laws of England go into sort of the void. And everything's played across according to the rules of the play until the referee blows his whistle at the end when we go back to ordinary life. But during that period, people are not allowed to come on the pitch. <laughs> Do you see what I mean? They have to stay off if they're not players. So it's a bit like that because you have to create a space where people don't come in and interrupt and you have to have a sufficiently long period of time for your initial agitated thoughts to settle so that you can then play and play in a very relaxed way, not cudgeling your brains and furrying your brow, but just thinking, I wonder if, or what would happen if, or why did I suddenly think of the hippopotamus, that sort of play. And I would recommend any businessman or businesswoman listening to this now, there's a book called Hairbrain, Tortoise Mind, written by Guy Claxton, and I would say go and read that book, uh, because it says very simply there's two ways of thinking, slower and faster. Every day is faster, slower is much better for anything creative, and also, because it is creative, anything to do with people, because you can't quantify people and get exact measurements of them, so you can't use fast thinking. You have to use your feelings, and you can only be in touch with your feelings if you're reasonably still. Yeah, and it reminds me a little bit of, um, which you might have read as well, you know, Thinking Fast and Slow by Daniel Kahneman. It's a similar principle. Yeah, Kahneman. I, I, I found that book puzzling. I don't know why. I couldn't, I couldn't quite fit it into what I already know. It's hard to read, that's for sure. You, you thought so? 
It is hard to read. It's very dense. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, like I said to you, I'm a slow reader. I think that's the book I've, I've read slowest. Yeah, I'm a terribly slow reader, you know, science and law. I mean, I always used to read the newspaper as though I was going to take an exam on it. <laughs> <laughs> okay. You talk about um, in your book, and you've, you've just alluded to it, but I'd like to expand it a little bit. You talk about creating time and space as these rule bound, like self-imposed rules to make sure that you are, you're giving yourself the respect to go and create and go and be in flow state. So I'd like to unpack that a little bit. You've got to put yourself first for a time. You see, Daniel, normally we don't. I think not normally we sort of feel if somebody knocks on the door of our office, we ought to let them in. And you just have to say, no, this is a period of extreme selfishness where I don't want to be interrupted. And I just want to be quiet and have fun and think. And it may come up with ideas that get, makes everybody's job expectations rather improved. You see what I mean? That's why businessmen need to have ideas, because otherwise Otherwise, the country, uh, the company goes on doing what it's done before, and then it's overtaken and it's nowhere because it can't catch up again. And what do you think the main pitfalls or areas to watch out for that can ruin someone's creative flow? So obviously, you know, you talk about interruption is just incredibly infuriating. Is there anything else? Yes, yeah, so there's a lot of things. There's any kind of pressure, really. If you're in a group and everyone's insecure and trying to prove that they're smarter than the other people or the opposite, trying to prove they're not stupider than the other people, any of those kind of pressures, time pressure, the moment you're under time pressure, it pushes you into automatic thinking, the thinking that you always have, and you can only have stereotypical thoughts if you're racing uh, to meet a deadline all the time, which is why journalists are sort of famously uncreative and famously addicted to cliches, because those are things that speed their work up. The other fear is the fear of making a mistake, because when you're really playing, there's a beautiful quote by Einstein. Einstein said, if when you're doing research, you know what you're going to discover, it wouldn't be research. In other words, when you're being creative, you uh, you don't know where anything is going to lead. You think of a hippopotamus. Well, you, you just follow it. All right, why a hippo? Well, wallowing, wallowing, uh, two hippos, one says to the other, I keep thinking it's Thursday. You just start free associating, but you don't know whether that's going to be a profitable avenue to go down or not. So there's no such thing as a mistake. And in a group, somebody sometimes will say something and someone else misunderstands it and then as a result comes up with a, an idea they wouldn't have had if the other guy hadn't said something which they misunderstood. So there's no such thing as a mistake. And the, the fear of making a mistake is very strong in kids. Uh, and they obviously must pick it up from the society. And it's, it's interesting because you've done a lot of your creative writing in, in partnerships. I think it's really it's a really great lesson. It's really interesting. A lot of entrepreneurs the majority of entrepreneurs are co-founders, so they you know, run a business with someone else, and that is a partnership, and it's a lot of back and forth, a lot of creative um, thinking and challenging. And I really enjoyed uh, reading your anecdotes you know, about your, your creative partnerships with um, the conversation around uh, Blue Parrots. 
for example, where, you know, your, your opinion that, you know, you would do most of the writing, but, you know, he'd always come up with a really obscure, really abstract thing that made that scene just that extra bit more memorable and extra bit more brilliant, but that's what that partnership was about. The problem is that you have to be in different moods, and I think that one of the mistakes that was made was to take over the American model where you have a CEO. The old-fashioned English one was you had a chairman and a managing director. You see, the managing director was doing the quick thinking, fixing problems, uh, dealing with lots of important, responsible stuff, doing a great job, but busy. And the chairman was the one who sat there having a vague idea of what was going on in the company, but just sort of thinking into the distance and saying... Well, how would it be if, you know? And they are the two part halves of the mind. And I think if you have one person in one half and one in another and they get on well together, that may be a better way of running things than to have one person who's trying to do both. If you're trying to grow your startup and you're dealing with companies outside of the UK, you're probably going to need ISO 27001 at some point. It's not the sexiest acronym, but it's basically the global standard for proving your security practices are up to scratch, like how you handle customer data. The same goes with SOC 2. You're going to need it if you're a SaaS company. But achieving these security frameworks can be very tedious and very costly. This is where our partner Vanta comes in. Vanta automates up to 90% of the work for certifications like ISO 27001, SOC 2, GDPR, HIPAA, and more, getting you audit ready in weeks instead of months, and saving you up to 85% of the cost. And as a special offer, our listeners get 20% off Vanta. Just head to vanta.com slash secretleaders. That's V-A-N-T-A dot com slash secretleaders for 20% off. There's a link in the description. Look, you know I'm fascinated by AI, but until the machines take over, there's only one thing that's going to determine your company's fortunes. People. This isn't some kind of hollow point to make me look good. If you speak privately to any successful entrepreneur, they'll confirm it's true. So, if you're a leader of a growing business, then you should check out Personio. It brings together all the important HR things like hiring, onboarding, payroll data, performance reviews, and so on. You don't want loads of employees sending you emails asking for time off. You want to be able to see things objectively, like it's taking you too long to hire. You want to do performance reviews well, having clear goals for people that are logged in a centralized system. And you want to do all these things in one simple tool without having to become an HR expert. All of this is possible with Personio. Check it out at personio.com forward slash secret leaders. That's personio.com forward slash secret leaders. There's a link in the show notes. Business leaders often feel like they need to perform and can feel a lot less comfortable uh, doing so. You know, doing presentations to teams, writing memos, those are all key requirements of doing a job well. And essentially, that's communicating creative ideas effectively. So what do you think we can learn from your world in order to uh, create these with a more instinctive eye and talent? Well, I think there's a key word here called rehearsal. When I'm filming now, the, the directors always want to film straight away because they're always under time pressure. 
So they was, you, you just have the first rehearsal, and they say, OK, well, shoot. And I want to say, now, there's this new idea called rehearsal, which is based on a very dodgy premise, which is that if you do things more often, you'll probably get better at them. <laughs> do you think we could rehearse a bit? And some of the great directors, like Billy Wilder, would spend an enormous amount of time rehearsing, and all the producers would be tearing their hair out. But, of course, when they shot, it went like grease lightning because everyone knew exactly what they were doing. And so I think that I would say to these people, rehearse. And the other thing is, only say the basic facts of what you want to say. Most people lose the track by going off on, you know, little expeditions off the, off the path of what they're saying. And it is much better just to boil it... Well, it's like the book. I boiled the book down to about five things. Well, most creativity books will have 150 things. Do you see what I mean? But mine is basically you've got to get in a relationship with your unconscious. That means you've got to play. You can't play unless you get separate from... Uh, ordinary life, therefore you have to set up a space where you can do that. And finally, at the end, when you've had an idea, then you have to bring the ordinary critical thinking back in, the harebrain, to evaluate whether it's a good idea or not, because just because it's a new idea doesn't mean it's a good one. That's it. That's, I've just saved everyone seven pounds. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we don't want the publishers to hear that, so uh, let's pretend that's not the case. I'm assuming you're not a fan of uh, the Charles Brandeth model then, which is, you know, uh, just, uh, do you know Charles Brandeth? Giles Brandeth, yes, yes, he does word word games on the television. Yeah, yeah, I thought I thought you might find him quite amusing. But yeah, he's he's, he's famous for having the uh, Guinness World Book of Records longest speech of all time. Well, that's the sort of thing Giles would do. I think he does everything with his tongue in his cheek, and I always rather like him. And he wrote a book about his experience as a Conservative MP, which convinced me that Parliament should be completely remodelled. I thought it was a very good book. But uh, no, yeah, that's the, absolutely the opposite. Boil it down to the essentials. And the, the thing with most movies, Movies, you always have to get rid of anything that isn't on story. That's why I was in uh, Harry Potter for two episodes, two films for a nearly headless Nick. He's nothing to do with the story. Cut him. And, and that's a very severe discipline. My old friend Bill Goldman, who won two Oscars, you know, Butch Cassidy and all that, all the president's men, he said it's the hardest form of writing because you can't have anything in there that isn't spot on the subject. And in a, uh, anything else, you can have digressions, you know? But that's why Douglas Adams wrote wonderful books but was no good at scripts because he couldn't stick to the point. I want to go to some questions that we've had. Obviously, I want to put up on Twitter that, you know, we were interviewing you on Secret Leaders, got flooded with a bunch of questions from our listeners. So I wanted to share some of them uh, so we can get them Get your perspectives, please. So the first one is from Rachel Carroll, who is the founder of Koru Kids, which is a childcare and nanny training platform that recently raised a £10 million Series A funding round. So that is the largest of any female founder in the UK yet, which is awesome to see her breaking down glass ceilings. Now, she wants to know, I'd love to know what the Python's process was for coming up with stuff. Like, did they do group brainstorming? Was it free-flowing? Were you allowed to say, and that's a dumb idea? If not, what would you do if Eric Idle had a dumb idea? Well, it was a mixture of both, because most of the time we would go off and write, maybe for six or seven working days, 
and then we would come back together and simply read out what we'd written. Um, and then we simply uh, chose what everyone had laughed at, and we politely ignored what people hadn't laughed at. It was as simple as that. But then it got more complicated because the writing, Chapman and I nearly always wrote together. Eric always wrote on his own. And Mike and Terry sometimes wrote together and other times wrote separately and just talked over the phone. But once we got together and read the stuff out, the only real criterion was, is it funny, is it not funny? And, of course, what was nice about Python with our very varied structure was that if there was a sketch with a funny bit in the middle that wasn't very good at the beginning or end, we could still find a way of using the funny bit you know, by perhaps even making a joke about the fact that the beginning wasn't very good or something. So once we got together, we would have we would throw a lot of ideas there. We'd choose the material, and we'd say, "This is funny. This isn't funny. This might be funny if it's rewritten." And then we say, "Well, this will go in show A, and this should go in show B." And then, oh, there's something else that seems to go in A with that. And then, when we had two shows together, we would divide up into groups again. And Chapman and I would do, let's say, the first 12 minutes. Mike and Terry would sit in the same building, but in a different room, and do the next 12 minutes. And Eric would do the last six minutes on his own. And that way, we would come back together again and then read through it. And, you know, but what the, the really big creative stuff was always done in groups of two or one, but it was integrated into the whole group all the time. Got it. So now you know, Rachel. Um, a question from Oleg Fomenko, who is the founder of Sweatcoin, which is an app that helps you earn rewards whilst you walk. With over 40 million users worldwide, they are the most popular in the world for their segment. And um, he wants to know, what are your sources of positivity and energy, and where do you get ideas and feed your soul? I think doing anything that you enjoy and that you find interesting is a source of energy and doing things you're not interested in sucks it away, you know. It's like being with people that you're in tune with. You finish up even as an introvert after a conversation like, like the one we're having because we're slightly similar in the way we think. Um, you feel energised. If you're with someone... Uh, uh, who you just don't mesh with at all, then the conversation is tiring, and that's the original thought of a vampire. It wasn't sucked blood, it just sucked energy, you know. Um, so far as where the ideas come from, well, that's what the whole book about is. Look, if you're very bright, you can make small improvements, but you'll never come up with a breakthrough idea. And if you're going to come up with a breakthrough idea, you have to create this space I've been talking about and see what your unconscious throws up. There's no guarantee on any given day that it will. But if you keep at it, eventually it will. And Chapman and I had very, very sterile days when we did nothing at all, but we knew from experience that we could average 15 to 20 minutes good material a week. So if we had a bad day, we'd think, oh, all right, well, we'll have a good day soon. And if you beat yourself up and think I'm no good at this, of course, that's simply complicating the issue. Sometimes you'll be fertile because your unconscious is at work throwing up good stuff, and other times it may not be working very well, but you can't hit it with a stick. You just have to wait and, and encourage it. Yeah, there's actually, you know, really great research in neuroscience about pretty much that, about how it's actually the empty days where you produce nothing that really like, are vital and like scientifically proven to set you up for the later breakthroughs. If you don't have those days, it's not part of the process, it won't happen. 
Somebody said to me once that the guy who was married to Margaret Mead, uh, Mead uh, Gregory Bateson, had said, you can't have a new idea unless you get rid of an old one. Do you see what I mean? I, yeah, that, but that reminds me of your arch nemesis, uh, Homer Simpson statement that every time I learn something new, it pushes old stuff out of my brain. <laughs> That's right. People, the people who get good at anything are the people who are trying to get good at it. Repeating the same thing again and again teaches you nothing. And people don't know that. They think that if you've made 50 television programs, you're better than somebody who's made 10, only if you're trying to improve all the time. Very true. Okay, we've got June Angelides, who is a VC or a venture capitalist at Samos and the founder of Mums in Tech, who asks, um, how do you manage your personal brand as an actor and running a business? Does one ever get in the way of the other? Yes, they, they both get in the way of each other. Yes, managing them is, is difficult. And I think the most important thing is to try and draw clear lines between some periods. You know, if your partner understands that sometimes you're in work mode and sometimes you're not, I think that happens with my second wife. Whenever I switched from, uh, you know, husband role to work role, she felt neglected. Do you see what I mean? So I think you have to be realistic. I have to say, look, some of my time, I've got to be deeply involved in this. It brings in money that we both use. And if you've got two people doing that, they may understand rather better the, the, the necessity. But there's a certain kind or certain cast of mine, like my mother, if I read a book when I was at home with my mother, she regarded it as an aggressive act because she couldn't really get interested in a book, so she didn't really believe I could get interested in a book, and she felt if I was reading a book instead of talking to her, I was preferring the book to her. Do you see what I mean? So it's a, a large-scale addition of that little problem. Okay, we've got a question from Devin Hunt, who's the co-founder of the fashion technology giant List and also an advisor to multiple well-known startups. He says, what's your personal philosophy on working? Is it a rigid process or beautiful serendipity? Distractions or total focus? I think it has to be both. I mean, every day there's a certain amount of stuff, you know, trivia, I call it. And it's not necessarily trivia, but I'm talking about things like arrangements. And you've got to spend a certain amount of the time doing those. And then you've got to spend a certain amount of the time in a more creative mode. And the appallingly difficult thing is getting from the busy mode into the more contemplative mode. And I sometimes think that that was the purpose of humor from an evolutionary point of view. It was a way of people getting relaxed after a stressful day. Does that help? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Gabby Kahane, who is the founder of branding and purpose agency Multiple, asks, what is your most creative piece of work and what people and or processes do you think led to that creation? I think probably Wanda was the most creative because I didn't start from anywhere. Well, it was to, to a Python. I mean, we went into a meeting with a guy who ran comedy. And when he said, you'd, I hear you'd like to do a series, we said, we'd love to, Mr. Mills. He said, what do you propose? And we hadn't discussed it, which sounds like total insanity. But when you look back at it, the very fact that we'd not made a statement of what we were going to do left us incredibly free to discover what we were going to do. Otherwise, we would have been limited by what we'd already committed ourselves to. So we had no preconceived notions. 
And uh, uh, Fish got wonder because it started from one point and finished up so far away from it, and that was the result of 13 drafts of the script. Yeah. And then our last question, having to cut these off now, we're going to end with Nigel Walsh, who is the insurance partner at Big Four accounting firm Deloitte, who said, wow, I saw him do a keynote at a conference a few years ago. He was great. But as soon as I pointed out that that is the worst question I've ever received, he ended up with a better one, which was, uh, what prep do you do before each performance event or show? Well, I find out about the audience. I think people don't spend enough time thinking about the audience. You have to think, what, what are their assumptions? What do they know about? What will they be surprised by? What will they be annoyed by? Because if I'm doing something they're going to be annoyed by, I have to go in much more gently and with more humour. So you have to think of their mindset in terms both of emotional mindsets and, and uh, actual knowledge systems. You know, what are, and, and once you do that, what's the age of the audience? Is it mainly men, mainly women? Do we have any engineers there who are going to hate any talk about the unconscious? Once we know... What's, uh, what the audience is, then we can think of them while we're laying down what we want to say. And there are some things you can say very simply and quickly because they understand them, they know about them, there's no controversy. And then there are other things that you're, you're much more tentative about putting in front of them because they might not agree and you're trying to persuade them instead of tell them. So it's all to do with thinking where the audience is and trying to sort of cater to them. on to a couple of my own questions now. So I mentioned, you know, I spent a lot of time reading and learning about neuroscience. Are you familiar with the default mode network and its uh, impact on creativity? Yes. Yeah, so you're talking about Guy Claxton, aren't you? Yeah, exactly. And yeah, and so like the, the impact, you know, obviously, like we were mentioning earlier with, with rest, and there's a lot of research that suggests that essentially creatives, um, especially well-known creatives like yourselves, if you go into a brain scan, will be shown to have a much more visible DMM than the rest of us, but actually anyone can access an improved DMN by um, more rest, more meditation, more time spent in, um, in space. Well, I think, I think it's known, for example, taxi drivers in London who do this three-year examination on all the streets in London, which is phenomenal, the knowledge, a phenomenal feat of knowledge they have, and it changes their brain. And I knew a woman, uh, not a woman, a man who was a, a sommelier, who all his life had been fascinated by smells. He used to get ticked off by his parents because if people came to dinner, he'd slip up to them quietly and try and smell them. And of course, uh, people who know a great deal about wine have another part of the brain that develops. So I, I don't find anything surprising about that at all. But what's interesting is you talk about meditation and not just practice of a skill. And you told me that that helps to improve the capacity. I didn't know that. I'd like to know more about that. As, do, uh, as does resting and napping. I think resting and napping are essential because one of the things I notice more and more as I get older is that I can still think fairly clearly, but I do. my brain gets more tired. And I've read research about how uh, tiredness affects our thinking and how if you're going into court, the last thing you want to do is to be uh, the last uh, case before lunch because the judge will be slightly hungry and slightly more irritable and you're more likely to get a worse sentence. And I notice I, if I play chess with my computer in the morning, I beat it. 
And if I play with it in the evening, it beats me because my brain's tired. Makes a lot of sense. And um, before I was an entrepreneur, I actually worked in creative advertising and I'd learned, you know, uh, about this model, the four stages of creativity model by Graham Wallace, uh, even that's from the 1920s. Are you familiar with this? No. Absolutely very similar to what you talk about, but, you know, he talks about there's four stages, preparation, incubation, illumination, and verification. Oh, yes, I've heard of that. Yes, that's right. And I bought a book in Cambridge that was written in the 19th century that was all about incubation. So people have known about this, but there's only much you, so much you can say about it because it's the unconscious. You know, what was interesting reading your book is um, even more interesting to know you don't know that model. Your book really outlines those with different words. Well, it's the same thing, you see. When I first started studying this, a friend of mine called Brian Bates, who was in charge of psychology at Sussex University, he said to me, most of the great research has been done and uh, the sort of research has hit a brick wall after a time. It's just about making friends with your unconscious. You can't say much about that. And you certainly can't make rules because your unconscious doesn't follow any rules except its own. My favourite insight from your book, if I may say, was the idea that being creative is getting comfortable with decisions being unresolved. So can you unpack that for us? Well, you see, people always think you should have to take uh, decisions straight away um, because that's being decisive. And I want to say that is 100% wrong. The first question you ask whenever there's a decision is, when does this decision have to be made? That's a real world. The answer might be 2 o'clock this afternoon. It might be in the spring of next year. But once you know that, why would you take the decision before that time? Because if you wait, you may get new information. Well, that's obvious. But when we're talking about creativity, you may get better ideas. The more you think about it, the more you'll get ideas, and those ideas will clarify. And you keep bringing in the creative mind and saying what's good and what doesn't. And that way, you get the maximum chance to get maximum information and maximum creativity. So you don't take the decision until then. The reason people take decisions is that if you don't take a decision, there's always a slight feeling of, hmm, I don't quite like that hanging in the air. And creative people can tolerate that feeling better than people who have to rush the decision. Yeah, okay. And um, you also talk a lot about, um, well, I, I like this a lot in the book as well, the, you know, the Buddhist beginner's mind, or what you reference as well as the law of diminishing returns. So. Uh, you know, this is the idea that actually um, younger people might have the spark of genius and uh, experience isn't everything. Yes, but it also means when you sit down each time to meditate, try and do it with a fresh mind. Just don't do try and do exactly what you did yesterday. So an old person can apply that. If you constantly think to yourself, right, let's look at this with fresh eyes. Let's find a new approach to this. What provides you to doing that? You go on learning. But if you don't do that, if you just repeat the same thing year after year after year, you learn nothing. Completely. Um, okay, I think, you know, to summarise, uh, John, because I know we're, we need to wrap up, you know, summarising what the most important lessons could be from a, a life as a creative that we in the business world can take from you would be really helpful because I guess every day as we've discussed is a creative process, but what we lean into might need a little motivation or inspiration. So perhaps you could provide it. And of course, John, as always, remember, Brevity is the soul of wit. Ah, yes. And you know who said that? 
Well, I, I hope it's you. But... Well, no, it's Alexander Pope. I only learned that two or three uh, weeks ago. He also said, if you want to know what God thinks of money, look at the people he gives it to. Very good. I think what you'd say is that almost all the really uh, outstanding creative people uh, work pretty much on their own. I mean, painters don't have their studio, studio full of friends or advisors, you know? Musicians aren't sitting there writing out music with lots of people sitting around them. Writers go and sit at their desk in their room and they close the door and they take the phone off the hook, to use old-fashioned language. So I would say that what you've got to do is to create these quiet spaces where you can really sit and think without interruptions. And somebody quoted some research to me recently, which corresponds to what I feel, which is that if you have a problem in your mind and you put various factors into it and you're balancing them and the phone goes, if you answer the phone, it'll take you 20 minutes to get back where you were before the phone started. That's how destructive interruptions are. But I guess to summarise, and this is, you know, putting some words in your mouth, I'd love your, your feedback on it, but also some of what I extrapolated from the book. Start the creative process on your own in solitude, etc. but then be really open to the feedback, get criticism and get other people involved in that process to make it from a good idea into something memorable and brilliant. Is that right? Yeah, that's absolutely right. And people don't like criticizing, particularly if they're friends. So always uh, phrase the question in a positive way. Don't say what's wrong with this. Say, give me two ways I can make it better. Fantastic. Thanks, John. It's been such a pleasure. Where can people follow you, buy the book, and even see you trolling Trump if they feel like it? <laughs> Oh, I've got uh, I've got a website. I've got John Cleese Twitter. As far as I can make out, is a good way of finding out what I think of Trump. What an extraordinary thing! Forty-two percent of the American people are dedicated to a man who has exactly all the faults that you would enumerate if you were writing about what makes a terrible leader, and an uncreative one at that. Yes. Mad as a fucking hat. In yeah. summary, vote please. <laughs> I wouldn't mind being president of the world just for a few months. Yeah, for a few months, why not? I think that's a perfect way to end. Yeah, otherwise the responsibility would become overbearing. Agreed. That was really great, John. Thank you so much for your time. I know that you've been very busy. Pleasure. It's nice to talk to someone who understands all this stuff completely. So. I've really, I've really enjoyed reading the book. I've really enjoyed getting up to date with my own creative reading and stuff. It's been really brilliant. Thank you. Here at Mindset Win, we want to give you the tools to become better at what you do. Taking inspiration and wisdom from our guests, we will hear stories, strategies, tips and tricks. Told by leading names in sport and beyond. Who know what it takes to get to the very top. There will be two episodes each week packed with amazing stories and practical takeaways for us all to follow. Search for Mindset Win on YouTube and on your favorite podcast app. Next week on Secret Leaders. This friend of mine who committed suicide was really one of the most influential men in British business, certainly that I knew of, right? And what struck me, and this is something that strikes me as well, being in, in technology, is the rules around what you can and can't say in business are so predetermined. You're not allowed to overstep this mark for fear of being cut down. Just don't do the things that you feel society you maybe need to do. 
And actually, when you start talking about it, other people go, fuck, actually, I can be myself as well. And it's like, oh, God. That was recorded in front of a live audience of 200 founders all about mental health struggles and entrepreneurship with myself, Damien Bradfield of WeTransfer and Mills of Us Too, all sharing our own struggles with mental health from anxiety and depression to suicidal thoughts. We do our best to be real without being too heavy, but I'm really proud of this episode and we don't shy away from being really real about what this journey takes out of you. So tune in or you'll miss out. This episode was brought to you by me, Dan Murray-Serta. I encourage you to follow me on social at Dan Murray-Serta for all sorts of stories on mental health and entrepreneurship. But we've also got our social channels at Secret Leaders back up and running now too. So go follow us there, particularly our brand new YouTube channel, where you'll be able to see interviews just like today's on video. If you enjoyed today's episode, screenshot and tag us to share the episode or tweet us. It means a lot. And if you really loved it, why not review us please too? It only takes a second. This episode was produced by Rich Martel, with editing done by Harry and Daniel at Lower Street Media, artwork by Christina Naru, and marketing support from Charlotte and Alicia at Mags Creative, and bringing it all together seamlessly, our newest team member, Will Stolliman, as the head of podcast. Thanks for the great teamwork, guys, and see you next week.